from previous talks. The subject, for the moment at least, is here, is questioning, asking oneself questions which very often we keep aside because we are afraid that they may shake our confidence in life, in God, in the Church. And I want to continue on the same line. Those who were here last time probably remember that basing myself on a quotation from Saint Irenaeus of Lyon, I've underlined the fact that God had offered us two ways, the way of life, by communing with him unreservedly, totally, in faith and in life, and another way, which is a way of knowledge, which is not a way of perdition, but a discovery of the ways of God through his creation, discovering the maker through what was made. The first one belongs to the saints and is open to each of us, and each of us, to a certain degree, more or less completely, more or less wholeheartedly, more or less successfully, discover God through prayer, through communion with him, through fulfilling his will, through sharing his ways. But many, millions of people, for one reason or another, do not have access to this directness of communion with God. Among the Christians, not everyone has the wholeness of purpose, the courage, the integrity of faith that would allow him or her to face God, to stand face to face with him always and to learn who he is through the direct communion of prayer, when God opens himself to us while we open ourselves to him. I have mentioned to you that one of the things which we must learn before we start morning or evening prayers consists in taking our stand silently in his presence and say to him and to ourselves, Lord, I do not yet perceive your presence, but I know that you are here. And I stand there thanking you that in your humility, your compassion for me and for others, you are there for me to stand in your presence. If such be your will, make me feel it, perceive it. 
But otherwise, I know for sure that it is so. And then keep quiet for a while in his presence, in the certainty that he is there. I have quoted in the past a passage of the life of one of the Western saints of the 18th century, the Curé d'Ars, who was a priest, a true saint of God, and a priest in a minute little village in the region of Dijon in France. He came time and again to his church and found an old man sitting there, immobile, doing nothing. And one day he said to him, Granddad, what are you doing hour after hour in the church? Your lips are not moving in prayer. Your fingers are not running along your rosary. What are you doing here? And the man looked at him and said, he looks at me, and I look at him, and we are so happy together. This is the direct way in which we can commune with God and learn about him. When his life flows into us, when his knowledge is not intellectual, but direct, simple knowledge, which on another level we have of people whom we love and who love us. When we can sit silently together and be happy, communing in our mutual openness to one another and love. But the other way which I have mentioned, the way of knowledge, consists in looking at what God has made and his ways in life and in history. It is a roundabout way in a sense, but it is also a way that can lead us to a profound knowledge of God. I have given you examples. We can recognize the hand of an icon painter in an icon and not only see that this is an icon of Christ but say this icon was painted by such and such men or woman. The same applies to all forms of culture and creative experience. And for pursuing this idea, I have underlined to you the fact that if you read the beginnings of Genesis, you discover that the, the way which took certain people away from God was not yet a way of perdition. I will come back to this, but I want to mention it again for those who were not there when I spoke of it, because I believe it's immensely important to remember. Cain, after the murder of his brother, 
was commanded to go away from the divine presence. He could not combine the joy of communion with God with the hatred that had pushed him into murder. And he went. But what we read in the book of Genesis, which we forget very often, is that he went together with his family and that they are the people who first built cities and invented the arts. So it is not a complete destruction. They had to find their way tragically in the divine absence, rejected as it were by God, forbidden to imagine that they still were his own people while they had chosen to act contrary to everything that God is. This is an important point. I will come to this in another context. But what I want to say about it is that this discovery of God through beauty, through science, through all what is human, but what is not divorced from God, because there is nothing human which is alien to God in essence. But it allows us to understand that God had not planted a tree of life and a tree of death, and that the fact that mankind to a very great extent, has chosen the way of the tree of knowledge does not mean damnation, alienation from God. It's a long roundabout way in the history of mankind, and we can see it in the Old Testament and in the history of the whole world. To that, I want to come back. But in this context, I know I pointed out that things being such, God is not the cause of our destruction. If God had planted a tree of life and a tree of death, attractive, alluring, he would be responsible for the fall of Adam and Eve. In the context of St. Irenaeus' quotation, we can look at it with hope. But there is another situation which is also tragic, which was brought to my attention years ago and which has come again to my attention after my talk. It is the case of Judas. What we see in the case of Judas is this. Christ chooses 12 disciples to be with him 
to listen to his teaching, to accompany him everywhere and see his works, to be integral part of his acts of salvation of mankind. And among them, there is one called Judas. And he, in the end, delivers Christ to his enemies and to death. It's something so frightening, so tragic. We know that the disciples were not always heroic in their faithfulness. There were moments when they were afraid. You probably remember how, having left Jerusalem after a conflict with the synagogue, Christ turned to them and said, we must return. And the disciples said, but the Jews wanted to murder you. And he said, yes, but Lazarus has died. And then there is silence, except for one disciples, or the disciples who says, let us go with him and die with him. And this one is Thomas. Thomas whom so often we define as the daughter because after the resurrection when he, the other disciples told him that they had met Christ and he was risen, he couldn't believe it. We see only that moment in his life. And yet there is another dimension to it. He was away when Christ appeared to the ten disciples. Judas having already hanged himself. The disciples were filled with joy. And this joy they wanted to share with Thomas. And Thomas looked at them. And he saw men who were exultant with joy, but were the same. They had not changed. It was the same man whom he had known all the time, except that their mood had changed from fear into joy from uncertainty to assurance. And he said, if I don't see him risen, I will not believe. Later, when people saw the disciples of Christ, it is not their words that convinced them of the truth of their message. It was their presence. They spoke with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
who had indwelt them. It was God proclaiming the truth through them. But at that moment, it had not yet happened. It was ten men who a moment ago were hiding in the house of John Marx, hiding there of, for fear, and who now were reassured, and more than reassured, so gloriously happy that the master whom they had loved above all was alive. But they were not yet changed. Thomas was right. The testimony of words of their joy was not enough for him. And that is why Christ appealed to him and made him discover himself the resurrection. Thomas had doubted, but he had met Christ. Judas had hanged himself, but another disciple had also denied Christ. When Christ was in the presence of the judges, a young servant came up to him and said, but you were also one of them, and he was afraid. His master was now a prisoner. What could he hope for? He was afraid and said, I don't know that man. And it repeated itself twice. And in the end, he walked out of the courtyard because he could not face it. And at that moment, Christ turned his eyes on him and looked at him. And Peter began to cry. Christ and Peter met again when the risen Christ appeared to his disciples. They met again and Peter could receive forgiveness know that he is still loved totally and that he has a right, yes, a right, to be a disciple because now, after what had happened, he was more solidly establishing his faith than he had been before. There was a certainty of another kind in him. He had been the friend of Christ. Now he was the friend again of the Son of God risen from the dead. But what of Judas? Judas had hanged himself. 
Is there any hope for him? Was there any hope for him? And if not, how tragic. Because it is Christ who had chosen him to be one of the disciples. And on the Last Supper, Christ turned to him and said, Go and do what you intend to do and do it quickly. And what Judas intended to do was to betray his master and deliver him unto death at the hands of his enemies. Or was it not? I think we can look at the situation again and ask the question we have just formulated. Was it not this? Is it that according to someone whom I respect and admire, wasn't it something different that happened? Wasn't it that Judas felt that the moment of final crisis had come and that it was time for the resolution to happen? And that his intention was to provoke the crisis and ensure the revelation of Jesus as a victorious savior. He did not mean to murder him. He intended to create a crisis in which the Lord would manifest himself and show himself for what he was, the Lord of victory, the Savior, the Son of God, become the Son of Man. He did not understand the ways of God, but he did not mean to thwart the divine purpose. And the remarkable thing is that in the gospel, he comes with a crowd to Garden of Gethsemane. He comes with a crowd and he was asked to show to the persecutors, to the enemies of Christ, who of the ten men that were there was Christ. Now, according to Old Testamental law, if you brought a testimony against someone, you had to put your hands on his head and proclaim your testimony. And then, if your testimony was mistaken or false, you would undergo the punishment which the accused person, the person you accused, deserved, according to the law. He did not do that. He came and showed to the crowd who it was by a kiss, because he did not 
want to accuse him of being an enemy of the law, a betrayer. Christ was taken. He expected at that moment the victory of God, instead of which he saw the defeat of his master. Christ was taken. And then comes the judgment in front of Pilate, the judgment in front of Caiaphas, the way to the cross, the crucifixion. He had intended to provoke a final confrontation and a victory of Christ. And as he saw it, there was nothing he had done but a total destruction of his master. The master was no longer there for him to ask for his forgiveness. He hanged himself. And here we are confronted with an, a last question. Does it mean that everything was over? All the disciples, one way or another, at different moments, had proved afraid, unfaithful, but they all had had time to come back to their master, to open their hearts, to beg for forgiveness, to recognize their errors. Judas had no time. Or, it's a question which I asked years ago from a bishop whom I admire and respect. And he looked at me and said, all the disciples met Christ and found peace in this encounter. But why do you think that Judas did not? When? When after his death, Christ Saul descended into Hades, into hell, into the very place where Judas was, and they met. Can't we hope? Can't we hope with all the pain and joy of our heart that at that moment, Christ turned to him and said, you intended to achieve my victory and you have achieved it, but you did not know how. Come and may peace be upon you. I want you to reflect on that because it is so easy 
to call Thomas the doubter and Judas the betrayer. And then you look at the gospel and you see that he was one who had the greatest courage at moments of crisis when we think of Thomas. And who, who is the most tragic person of the gospel when we think of Judas. I would like you to think of it. I'm sharing with you, as I told you from the beginning, my own thoughts, my own gropings, I'm in search as you are, and I'm sharing with you my search. And the conclusions to which I have come up to date. But how much hope it gives. I will end at this point today's talk, but I would like you to think of what I have said today. Much of what I have said is a repetition of things which you have heard, but you must be accustomed to the fact that I repeat myself very often, but in different contexts that give a, a new meaning, a new significance to what I say, at least for me. Reflect on it. Reflect on the tree of knowledge and the way in which the whole history of mankind, the whole culture of mankind, the whole glory and tragedy of mankind is also the way of mankind in the discovery of God and of Christ. And remember also that when we speak of these two trees, it's not a matter of choosing the one and rejecting the other. Both are interconnected. By going along the search for the truth in, in history, we live in the very history which contained the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is part of it. To this I will come back again and again because I am groping for a way of expressing it, but I feel it is so important for us to have faith in the history of mankind, to have faith in the destiny of the world, and that all that happens in the world is part of its gradual growth with ups and downs and tragedies and glories 
to the revelation of God when he comes.